Imagine if you were the president of the United States facing an uncertain future of climate change, energy controversies, terrorism, and nuclear proliferation. Our guest today has done exactly that, basing an analysis on the hardest of the hard sciences, physics. Dr. Richard A. Muller is a professor of physics at UC Berkeley and a past winner of the MacArthur Fellowship Award. His new book, Physics for Future Presidents, subtitled The Science Behind the Headlines, has won the 2009 Northern California Book Award for General Nonfiction. Dr. Richard Muller, welcome to Radio Parallax. I'm delighted to be here. How did this book come about? Well, it started in my mind about 15 years ago when I was thinking about how many how much technology there is in modern decisions. Uh, it, it, not all decisions involve uh, science, but a large number of them do because of nuclear technology, we have energy, we have environment, terrorism and counterterrorism. They all have technical aspects. And I, I, I was concerned that our leaders not only didn't know this stuff, but thought they didn't have to know it and thought they couldn't know it. So originally I created a course at Berkeley in which I put only those things that future world leaders really need to know. I called it Physics for Future Presidents. And every year it grew. It was extremely attractive to the students. They know this stuff is important. And in the past they didn't learn it because they were afraid of physics. But I think that's bad teaching. I, I, everybody can learn physics. Physics isn't math. Physics is sometimes obscured by the fog of math. But if you just give the physics, and it's important physics, then, this, then, then, then people can learn it, they want to learn it, they know it's important. Well, your book is structured around a lot of key facts, and there's one that really kind of hit me between the eyes. It's central to a lot of issues that probably people are not aware of, which is that coal is 20 times cheaper than gasoline for the same energy. Oh, coal is dirt cheap, and, and that's the challenge. We use gasoline now because our cars are designed for gasoline. Car, gasoline used to be cheap, too. You, many of us remember those days. It's also very convenient because you pump it in so easily. You don't have to shovel it in. When you're finished, it's all gone. Uh, you don't have to shovel out ashes. So we, we built up around a gasoline economy because oil in the past has been so cheap. And now our automobiles still use that stuff, even though it's becoming not so plentiful and expensive. Well, some people out there think that hydrogen is a fuel of the future. A few years back on this program, we talked to one of the governor's energy consultants about his then-optimism on hydrogen, but enthusiasm's waned since then. Can you explain why that's happened? Yeah, hydrogen was... Um, <laughs> hydrogen sounds good because it has 2.6 times as much energy per pound. What many people missed was that a pound of hydrogen takes, takes much more... It takes about 10 times the space of a pound of gasoline. And, and so if you measure it per gallon, uh, then, then hydrogen is four times worse. I mean, it, it, if, you, if, you, if you compress the hydrogen, that's if you have liquid. If you, if you just have compressed hydrogen, uh, th then, it, then it's 10 times worse. So you can't stuff enough into your car. It's a serious problem. The other thing, of course, is we don't mine hydrogen. Uh, we make it. And what do we make it out of? <clears throat> we, these days we make it out of natural gas and coal. So it's not really that much intrinsically cleaner uh, from an environmental point of view. Uh, if, if we could just mine hydrogen, that would be great. But, but when we burn natural gas, we actually take natural gas, which has carbon and hydrogen in it. We extract the hydrogen out of that, and the carbon goes into the atmosphere. So uh, from the environmental point of view, it's no better than natural gas. I guess a lot of people think of hydrogen as that, that science experiment we did in high school where it was made out of water, but that's really not how we get our hydrogen. 
it's more expensive to do it that way. Yeah. And in principle, in the future, we can do that. But then it's an expensive technology. And I, I like to emphasize that we in the U.S. are wealthy enough that we can do expensive technologies. But uh, if, if we set an example by using an expensive technology that the emerging economies can't follow because they can't afford it, then in the end we're not solving the problem because, in fact, unfortunately, most of the carbon dioxide it's not going to come from the U.S. It's going to come from the emerging economies. You talk at length in the book about uh, nuclear energy and nuclear proliferation, and, and I think we should talk about that too. But before we do that, I have to ask about one factoid in the book, which is just absolutely startling. You note that the U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms actually tests wine, gin, and whiskey for radioactivity. And if, they, if it's not in the drink, it's condemned. Why does alcohol have to be radioactive? Well, we have a law in the U.S., uh, based historically for other reasons, that uh, drinking alcohol has to be made out of living material. It has to be made out of grapes or grain or, or hops or, or, or fruit. Um, now, the only absolutely reliable test for whether something is made out of living material is that it's radioactive if it's living. All living material absorbs radioactive carbon from the atmosphere, or we eat plants that absorbed it from the atmosphere. In fact, radiocarbon dating, if you want to know how many thousands of years ago something died, you measure how much radioactivity is left, because it goes away once you die. So all living material has radioactivity. Fossil fuels don't, because they're so old. So if someone cheats by making drinking alcohol out of petroleum, then the only sure way you can tell is by looking at the radioactivity. It's ironic. It's not much radioactivity, but I just it, I, I love that example yeah. because it, it makes people recognize that radioactivity is not an alien, man-made thing. It's something that's part of us. Well, I really want to test your abilities as, as a lecturer, Dr. Muller, with this question. It can be a little bit tricky, but you note in the book that something that bedevils policymakers is that in setting standards for nuclear regulations that radiation actually may be safer at lower levels than at higher levels. And can you kind of explain that and why that may be some good news for all of us? Well, you know, that, that's a speculation, and we don't know if it's true. But, but think about other things. If you, if you get too much vitamin D, uh, it's toxic. Um, but at low levels, it's a required nutrient. Now, anything can overwhelm us at high levels. And so there's some speculation that at very low levels, radioactivity is not proportionately bad for you, that there's a threshold effect. But I, I, I wouldn't want to count on that. <laughs> I think it's likely that if you have one-tenth the radioactivity, the danger is one-tenth. The main danger being that it will induce an excess cancer. Uh, it, it takes a lot of radioactivity to induce a cancer, and, and most of the cancers around the world that people attribute to Chernobyl or, or to Three Mile Island are certainly not due to that, the release of radioactivity. Um, but, but we do know from Hiroshima and other major releases uh, that radioactivity does induce cancer. Well, I, I was intrigued by your analysis in the book, which you, you spent some time on this, that, um, that a dirty bomb is probably less fearful than the headlines would suggest. And can you, can you explain why that might be? Again, that actually gets back to the same threshold effect. Uh, forgetting about cancer for a moment, because a dirty bomb will increase your chance of getting cancer. Normally, without the dirty bomb, 20% of us get cancer, about. Let's say it's exactly 20%. Then with a dirty bomb, it might be increased to 20.01% or something like that. That would be the effect of the dirty bomb. 
people think of radioactivity as inducing radiation illness, of, of killing people. We saw Litvinenko, the, the Russian KGB guy who was poisoned using radioactivity, and he died this long, this, this long and painful death that was on the news every day. Uh, anybody who wants to know what radiation and illness is like, if they know someone who's getting radiation therapy for cancer, uh, a bit nauseated, it's, it's really, really a terrible thing. But if you get a thousand rem, don't worry about what a rem is, it's a dose. If you get a thousand rem, you'll probably die within, within a few days. If you get one-tenth of that, you won't even notice it. Radiation does have a threshold, just like vitamin D. Below this level of 100 rem, you, you don't even get ill. Eventually, you'll have a slightly increased chance of cancer, but there'll be no dead bodies at the scene. So once the radiation, well, it's concentrated, nobody can approach it. It's dangerous, it's bad, people will die of radiation illness. But if you put in a bomb and spread it out over, over a square mile, or even something the size of a football stadium, then the intensity goes down, gets below our threshold, and, uh, and, and we don't get sick anymore. So this is why Jose Padilla, uh, the, the Chicago street thug who was, came to the U.S. to build a dirty bomb and explode it, uh, he was told by al-Qaeda, forget that. Instead, uh, rent some apartment buildings, fill them with natural gas, and blow them up. It's ironic to me that Al Qaeda, and scary to me that Al Qaeda understands that the dirty bomb probably would have been a dud, but blowing up apartment buildings would have spread real fear and terror. Well, speaking of scary topics, uh, nuclear proliferation scares presidents and the public alike. Um, you, you note in the book that building an A bomb uh, currently does appear to be just simply beyond the reach of terrorists, and that's a thankful matter. But why is that? Well, uh, bombs, uh, there are two kinds of bombs. One of them is a uranium bomb, and there the hard part is getting a hold of enriched uranium. Ordinary uranium doesn't work. You have to have highly enriched uranium. That took a major program in the United States uh, to do that. Uh, it took a year with big instruments. It, it, it's hard to do. Uh, a plutonium bomb, it's relatively easy to get a plutonium, at least if you own a nuclear reactor. That's what North Korea did. But then the, the, the bomb design is much more difficult. It requires an implosion. That means squeezing it with explosives, not blowing it up, but squeezing it to get a much higher density. Like squeezing a water balloon, it tends to come out between your fingers. Very difficult to do. And, and that, that is why uh, we believe the North Korean nuclear explosion was so small. It was, it was uh, you know, 10%, less than 10% of the energy of the Nagasaki bomb. It used just as much plutonium, but it was basically a dud because doing that implosion is so difficult. In fact, the North Korean nuke, the bigger one, released less energy than the two airplanes going into the World Trade Center. Wow. So I worry more about uh, what I now call the classical terrorist attack using gasoline or jet fuel, uh, which are very similar, uh, just because that, that, that's more readily accessible, and, and instead of having to get the nuclear material and smuggle it in, you just buy the stuff at your corner station. Well, nuclear power is currently getting a second look by an awful lot of people. Um, you note in the book that contrary to public belief uh, and, and physics, a reactor cannot be blown up like an A-bomb. And Why does the physics prohibit this? Well, a, a nuclear, it's, it's like the difference between, let's say, gasoline and tar. Uh, they're both made out of, 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 uh, of, of hydrocarbons, uh, but, but they're so fundamentally different. In a nuclear reactor, you're using uh, uranium that's enriched to only 3%. To make a bomb, it has to be enriched to uh, 80 
So uh, what, what happens in a nuclear reactor is that uh, if, you, if, if, it, if it starts to run away, the runaway is so slow that by the time the energy is reaching the density of dynamite, the thing blows itself apart. The real trick in a nuclear bomb is you have to have the chain reaction go super fast. And super fast, that can't happen in a reactor because of the low enrichment. It's basically the physics. And, and, and by the way, there's no disagreement among the, in this. Everybody who understands nuclear physics, whether they are in favor of nuclear reactors or strongly opposed to nuclear reactors, everybody agrees that these things can't go up, blow up like a nuclear bomb. It, it, it's just a misimpression that people got from watching the movie The China Syndrome. Well, speaking of risks, uh, in, in our neighboring state here of Nevada, there's a, a controversial plan to store nuclear waste in Yucca Mountain. You've done the analysis, and you think it's an accept, acceptable risk. Why do you Why do you say so? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean that, that, the uranium that's there, the, the, the waste that's there, is so much less radioactivity, even when you fill it up, than the radioactivity that's in the mountains of, of Colorado, which is where we get our drinking water from, or a lot of it. Um, the, the radioactivity, uh, most of it goes away after 150 years. Sure, a little bit of it stays around. Uh, for thousands of years, but there's radioactivity in the ground that stays around for millions of years. If you compare it to the radioactivity in the ground that's already there, then you, you wonder why is anybody worrying about this? Uh, and the, the experts, the people who know about the levels of radioactivity, uh, talk to any of them. They'll tell you, well, it's not really a technical problem, it's a political problem. Uh, this is a case where Barack Obama made a promise to Senator Harry Reid that he would close down Yucca Mountain. And now he's stuck with that promise, which was a very bad promise. I mean, Yucca Mountain, it's so much safer to put our stuff there. Of course, Harry Reid doesn't want to have anything labeled waste being delivered to Nevada. So he's made a political, he's, he's really enhanced his political career by opposing having waste put in his, in, in his state, which is a real tragedy because you know, nobody wants waste in their state. But, but it's, certainly, it's certainly not really dangerous. If President Obama were to call you and ask you about, about nuclear waste reprocessing, and we know that the French do reprocess their fuel and then reburn that uh, plutonium in their, in their nuclear reactors, would you advise the president to consider reprocessing our fuels here in America? Yeah, I, I would. Reprocessing means taking the plutonium back out of it. And uh, when, 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 when President Jimmy Carter uh, decided not to reprocess, there were two arguments. One was the danger of nuclear proliferation from, from that plutonium. I think that we, that's something we can really handle. Uh, I'm not worried about U.S. plutonium leaking out. The other thing was actually that it costs more to reprocess the plutonium than just get fresh uranium in the first place. So it was a cost issue. And so they went for the cheaper thing. No reprocessing, we'll just go with the uranium. But that, that misses the cost that we're now paying from the fact that we have all this plutonium waste and nobody wants to take it in their own backyard. Uh, I, I think it's really worth it to spend a little bit of extra money, get the plutonium out, reburn that in your nuclear reactor, uh, use that instead of uranium, even though it's more expensive, and get rid of it so that people won't, uh, will, 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 will not be in such a panic about it. We're speaking with Dr. Richard Muller, author of Physics for Future Presidents, The Science Behind the Headlines. Dr. Muller, fusion power seems to have almost unlimited potential, but it remains something that some people think might never happen. Now, you associate both at, at Berkeley and at the Lawrence Livermore Lab with some of the brightest minds in physics. Does the physics community truly think that fusion is, is going to work someday? 
Oh, I think so. I, I think it's almost certainly going to work um, someday. Uh, you know, 50 years, 100 years, I would be surprised if we are not making use of, of fusion. But we're at the very early stages of doing this, and it's been very slow going, and we've been discovering all sorts of problems. We have a lot of different ways of doing it, but enough people are trying it that one of them will work. In the fusion community, uh, we make a joke about it. We say fusion is the energy source of the future. And it always will be the energy source of the future. <laughs> but in fact, the future will come. And, and it certainly will not have a big impact, I think, during the era of global warming. We need to do something about that in the next you know, 10, 20, 30 years. But beyond that, uh, fusion is, I think, going to be competitive. It's just right now, you know, hasn't been proven. We're not quite sure how to do all the details. There are three or four different approaches that might work. Uh, the fuel is so abundant and relatively clean that I think it's very likely to be an energy source of the future. Well, but uh, speaking of the present, I, I gather that you're, you're rather high on some pebble bed reactor technology. <laughs> well, pebble bed is a new kind of nuclear reactor that is intrinsically safe and is being developed in China, it's being developed in South Africa, and, and, and it's coming along. It, it's nice because you can make small nuclear reactors, and, and so you don't have the huge investment that you have to make in order to have a, a, a standard nuclear reactor today. But it's not the only thing in the future. There are some medium-sized nuclear reactors that I think are also possible. The problem with a nuclear reactor is you've got to put your money up front. You make the nuclear reactor, and then you start operating, and the operating costs are very low. Uh, because you, the fuel cost is, is, is almost nothing. You're just putting this uranium in there. It, it really really costs less than a penny per, per, per kilowatt hour for, for the fuel. Uh, but you have to put the money up front, and so people are loath to do it for fear that other costs, costs of natural gas, for example. Now, cost of natural gas has come down just in the last year to $3 a thousand cubic feet. It's really quite cheap. So the main problem with nuclear these days is the fear that there will be some cheaper form of energy. Now, the problem, of course, is the cheaper form of energy is invariably dirty. Coal is relatively cheap, but it produces lots of carbon dioxide. Natural gas produces half the carbon dioxide of coal, but it's still carbon dioxide. Nuclear doesn't produce carbon dioxide. It has this little bit of waste that Harry Reid doesn't want to accept, <laughs> uh, but even, even though it's not really dangerous. Uh, but, but, but you have to put the money up front. And so there's an investment issue there that I think uh, is just as important as the opposition of Senator Reid. Well, your final section of the book deals with climate change, and you have some pretty good credentials in climate analysis, and would note in the book that you accept that, that global warming is real and that humans are very likely to blame, at least in part, but you're a little less certain than some people are that the man-made increases in atmospheric CO2 are to blame. Why is that? Oh, I, I, I'm willing to accept the U.N. conclusion that it's uh, roughly 90% likely um, that we are responsible for about less than one degree Fahrenheit of global warming so far. Uh, lots of people think that, that, that humans have caused two or three degrees of global warming, and they're responsible for Hurricane Katrina and dying polar bears and elderly ladies uh, dying of the heat in Paris. And, and no, that, none, none of that is true. That, that's what some of the exaggerators will tell you, Tom Friedman or... or or, or, or Hansen. Uh, but, but that's not the consensus. That's not the scientific consensus. The scientific consensus is found in the UN report, the IPCC report. It says that human-caused global warming has been about 0.8 degrees Fahrenheit. That's not enough for anybody to notice unless you make lots of measurements, but scientists make lots of measurements. 
And what's scary is that 0.8 degrees Fahrenheit is roughly about what you would expect from the carbon dioxide we have so far. Now, most projections are that thanks largely to the improved economy of the developing world, there will be, you know, China's building one new coal burning, one new huge gigawatt coal burning plant every week. We put up a few a year, but they're doing 50. One, uh, two years ago, they put up 70 of them. And this is where most, this and in India and Russia and the developing world, this is where most of the carbon dioxide is going to be coming from. If we don't find an inexpensive alternative for them, one that they can afford, and, and they're not going to do anything that's expensive because their developing economy is so exciting to them and so important to the whole world. We have to have an inexpensive way alternative and and you know nuclear is one possibility solar power is another wind power is another there are some things that look very good right now but but that's what we're going to have to address uh, a lot of people think the u.s is going to be responsible for global warming of the 0.8 degrees fahrenheit the u.s has probably contributed 0.2 degrees fahrenheit more than our fair share at least by population number but it's only 0.2 fahrenheit and in the future we may contribute another 0.2 fahrenheit the, the global warming we're worrying about is global warming that's going to come from the burning of fossil fuels from the emerging economies around the world. That's where the UN gets these projections from. We need ways of getting energy that are clean and cheap enough that the emerging economies can afford to adopt them. It, it doesn't do any good for us to set an example if, if our example is we'll spend what's necessary. I, I oppose that because it's not going to do any good. It will just make us feel good. When global warming comes, we'll say, well, at least we weren't responsible. But, but in the end, we need to develop these technologies. I'm very enthusiastic about solar. Wind looks very good. Uh, interim natural gas, nuclear in a longer term. Uh, other technologies, electric cars, they're, they're really not going to help. Uh, so so uh, we have to look at this thing intelligently and aim for the prize, which is to make sure that the developing emerging economies can afford to adopt the same measures we adopt. Well, I know all of us, uh, most of us anyway, would like to, like to chip in and do our part. And you talk in the book about some things that you're very encouraged by. The fruit on the ground is what you called them. Uh, and heading that list was conservation. And I was kind of amused to note that... that you mentioned, you know, lighter, lighter colored roofs are a good idea to, uh, to, to cut heating costs, etc. Yeah, and the lighter color doesn't even have to be lighter color. Yeah. You can could, you could have brown roofs that are what they call cool roofs. The human eye doesn't see all colors. We don't see in the infrared, but half of the solar energy is in the infrared. You can put up a cool roof that is brown to the eye, uh, so it doesn't have to be white. If you don't like white roofs, fine, get brown roofs, but use a roof covering that is what we call cool. And that means the infrared light that we don't see is reflected. That can save huge air conditioning bills. In fact, uh, Art Rosenfeld, California Energy Commissioner, believes in most cases it makes more sense to put on a cool roof rather than to put up solar cells and use that electricity to run an air conditioner. Well, believe me, this, this new knowledge will be uh, uh, brought to the attention of my neighbor and his black roof sometime soon. <laughs> <laughs> Well, black can also be cool if you use the right black. Uh, I, I think a light-colored brown is best. But the whole idea, people don't eat, aren't, I've told so many people about these cool roofs. They were, a lot of the work was developed here at Berkeley, at the Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory. There's a whole, a whole, a whole website on that. But it, the, the, the roofing companies now know about it. But they don't hear the demand, and the public doesn't seem to understand it. But things like this, you put up a, you put up a cool roof, and you will, 
the, the money you will save in air conditioning uh, will pay you back in just a couple of years. That's a better return than you got from investing in Madoff. And <laughs> it's real. And not only that, but it's tax-free. And insulation in the walls help even more. So, uh, and, and, and put up the air conditioner whatever temperature you want. Don't, don't feel you have to sacrifice. But put on the cool roof, put better insulation in your house. It's win-win for everybody. I call it comfortable conservation. Indeed. Uh, my understanding is that as of this month, incandescent bulbs have now been officially banned by the European Union, and, and I know that you're pretty high on uh, compact fluorescents and LEDs. The compact fluorescents save money. <laughs> they, they, they produce, uh, they last much longer. Uh, I, I'm not in favor of banning things. I, I don't think you need to. You just need to inform the public better. And right now, one of the things that bothers me is we have LEDs and we have these compact fluorescents. The compact fluorescents are cheaper, the LED, and they're both great. They both really help. What bothers me is that the LED uh, people are now saying, don't use compact fluorescents. They contain mercury. And this really hurts me. People saying, I am greener than thou. We get bickering, green bickering among green people saying, don't use this, do that. You know, we need to do it all. My house is almost all compact fluorescence. The mercury is not a serious problem. Uh, I don't want the mercury, the, the, the compact fluorescent people saying, oh, don't buy LEDs, they're too expensive. The LED people saying, don't buy compact fluorescence, save mercury. This does harm. We've had fluorescent lights for a long time. That mercury is not an issue. Uh, we need all of these things, and let's stop uh, having one person saying, I'm greener than thou. Well, Dr. Mullen, let's say that the next president or the current one gets your book and sends out Air Force One to fly you back to Washington. Uh, if you could have one top point that you'd want to see him take away from the discussion that you have, uh, what would that be? Well, you know, my, my goal is not to give advice. I think the president needs to really understand these things. The top thing is... We and China and India, the best thing we can do is energy conservation. We should do that without sacrificing standard of living because then people won't go for it. But we can have comfortable conservation. We can save energy without changing our standard of living simply by investing it wisely. That's the biggie. Well, I, I have just one final question for you. Your, your website has a photo that has an invitation to see a more interesting photo. And I took the bait. <laughs> and was rewarded with you with a king cobra wrapped around your neck. Is that a real photo? That's a real photo. My wife took that. It was in Place Jamar El Fana in Mar Morocco. Uh, they have some very highly skilled snake charmers there, and the man was holding the snake around his around, with his hand in such a way that before it would strike, uh, he would feel it. <laughs> so he could, and he was he, he was the, the guy who was sitting next to me was making it strike at him. But it's quite an experience. I really recommend going to Morocco. It's a great country. They love Americans. And, and, and it, it, you swear it, it was taking place 2,000 years ago. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful place to visit. We've been speaking with Dr. Richard Muller, professor of physics at UC Berkeley. His new book is titled Physics for Future Presidents, The Science Behind the Headlines. Thank you very much, Dr. Muller, and I do hope you get that call from Washington. Okay, thank you. All right. All right. 